Well, it's good to be back um, with you all this Sunday. My family and I just got back from a two-week camping trip in the mountains in the back country of the beautiful state of Colorado. We almost didn't come home, but how could we not be with all of you? So we decided at the end of the day to come back. I got to tell you, uh, we go camping in the States every summer for a couple weeks, and camping in the States has gotten a lot more interesting since the fall of 2016 when Donald Trump was elected president uh, than it ever was before then. We find ourselves getting into all sorts of political conversations with people in America that we just never, ever, ever got into before. Whenever people find out we're from Canada, there's, there's really one of two reactions that they have. They really want to talk to us about politics. And sometimes it's to express how appealing Canada has suddenly begun to appear to some people uh, in America. By contrast, Krista was talking to this one couple, said we're from the Niagara Falls area on the Canadian side, and the, the woman says, Canada? She says, well, I tell you, we're getting tempted just to pack up and move. We might be neighbors before you know it. You know, there's sort of that sentiment. I was at a fast food restaurant and uh, the, the clerk found out that I was from Canada and he kind of leaned in. He said, so uh, what's life really like in Canada? Like, it's pretty awesome, hey? Um, but there are other people who are more interested in what we think about them. And so we, people would be like, so what do you, do you pay attention to our situation? What do you think? And um, I got into a conversation with a judge of 40 years who wanted me to know that everybody's got skeletons in their closets and these, these investigations that are going on in Washington, D.C., the stuff about Hillary and the stuff about Donald, like all this stuff should probably just be left to the side and we should pursue the future. And, but they really want to know. But what's more interesting is how the conversations get had. Because more often than not, what people who will spark up a conversation with politics will do it in this really sort of kind of secretive way. The clerk in the fast food restaurant literally looked around to make sure none of his coworkers could hear and then whispered, Canada's a pretty awesome place to live, eh? What's it like? As though he didn't want anyone to know that he was secretly considering moving to Canada or criticizing America. I was in a, a hot tub in uh, Estes Park with a guy uh, who was from North Carolina who was expressing disinterest or displeasure with Trump. I said, boy, he said, from North Carolina, it's pretty conservative territory to be critical of the president. And he said, oh, he says, where I'm from, it's further in the north. He said, most people are fairly free to speak their mind most of the time. I thought there was an interesting, a lot of qualifiers as though what he was conceding was that in reality, most of the time in America, you're not free to speak your mind politically right now. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's unique to America. I think all of us have a severe hesitancy in speaking our mind when it comes to political issues, precisely because we're afraid of the response that we're going to get in return. I think the thing that makes politics, an interesting elephant, maybe more interesting than all the other elephants we've talked about, is the, this visceral fear of the reaction that we'll get if we were to speak our mind honestly about what we think about politics. That's what 
lets you know that you're really dealing with an elephant in the room. This, the fact that a, a conversation with politics will, could inspire this sort of instantaneous, uh, angry, aggressive emotion, and you just never know what you're going to get in return, that, that politics conversations often get heated. And why do they get heated? Why is it an elephant in the room? Well, I'll give you my opinion. Whenever you find yourself in a conversation with somebody and you spark some sort of passionate, instantaneous, even aggressive and angry emotion coming back at you, you can be sure of one thing. You have touched a nerve on a worldview issue with that person. You have, you have talked about something that forms a part of their fundamental core convictions about the world and the kind of place the world should be. Or you have, you have touched on a fundamental core conviction about their identity, about who they are, and about their place in the world. Political conversation is so volatile because it is a part of our core belief system about our world and our place in it. I mean, that's what, essentially, that's what politics is. Politics is a part of the human project of creating a world in which we can live. In, for politics, the project is basically creating a world where we can live in safety and abundance for me and for my people. That's what politics is all about. And if that's what politics is, creating an environment of safety and abundance for me and for my people, then anything that threatens that safety and abundance, anything that threatens that peace and prosperity that I'm working for politically is dangerous and threatening and fear-inducing and needs to be resisted and opposed and even destroyed if possible. Um, in order to preserve my safety and the possibility of abundance for me and for my people. That's what politics is. The reason politics is so volatile is because many of us in an unspoken way have put our faith in politics to make the world the kind of world we want to live in. And it's tragic because in many ways, politics is diametrically opposed to what it is that Jesus came into the world to do, which is to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, which was the capital of the Roman Empire, describes what it takes for a person to be saved. This is what he writes. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation, Paul says, is available. Being rescued, being, um, having God intervene favorably in your life is based on two things. Confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That slogan, Jesus is Lord, is a very interesting slogan because what Paul is doing, he's actually co-opting and parroting or, or critiquing one of the most important political slogans in the first century. Remember, he's writing to the capital of the Roman Empire. And one of the most important slogans in the Roman Empire political scene was this, Caesar is Lord. 
And what Caesar is Lord meant is that Caesar is the godlike figure that the gods have given us, who, the one who will bring peace and prosperity to our world for us. Paul says the fundamental Christian commitment confession is say Jesus is Lord. When you say Jesus is Lord, what you're saying is Caesar is not Lord. I'm not putting my trust and faith in Caesar. I'm not counting on Caesar to be a godlike figure to bring peace and prosperity. Instead, my identity, my allegiance, my faith, my trust, my loyalty is to Jesus to be the one that God has sent to bring peace and prosperity into the world. So that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. My allegiance and loyalty is to Jesus, not to Caesar. By proclaiming Jesus is Lord, you are renouncing your citizenship in the Roman Empire. And you are claiming a citizenship in the kingdom of God. In Philippians 3, Paul is writing a letter to a church that is in a city made up of Roman citizens. And this is what he says. But our citizenship, not like them, our citizenship is not in Rome. Our citizenship is in heaven. We may live here. But we're not citizens of Canada or citizens of a first nation primarily. Our primary identity is not with our nation. It is with the kingdom of God. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Savior, by the way, is another title for Caesar. The, the primary pledge of allegiance to Caesar in the first century Roman Empire was hail Caesar, savior and Lord. Paul says, that's not our Savior and Lord. That's not our leader. Jesus is our Savior and Lord. Jesus is our King. Jesus is our Empire. Jesus is our Prime Minister, not Justin Trudeau. He's our Premier, not Doug Ford. He's our Mayor, not whoever the Mayor is where you are. For me, it's Walter Sensick. It's Jesus who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, Jesus is bringing things under his control. It's not under Caesar's control. It's under Jesus' control. And he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. He's the one who will bring genuine change into the world. That's the primary Christian confession. That the only person I trust to bring true transformation to my life and to the world is Jesus, not the political system of the day. And that's the way the church lived for the first 300 years of its existence. It did not have or desire or try to gain any political power whatsoever. It was made up of slaves and outcasts and poor people and <coughs> excuse me, um, folks who had no political importance in the first century Roman Empire. And they didn't seek political influence. That wasn't the goal. In 1 Peter, Paul is writing again to this church in Rome, in the capital of the Roman Empire. And he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, not citizens of Rome, you're not. You're citizens of the kingdom of God who are living in Rome, so you're foreigners. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as to the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Peter says, here's your goal. Don't try and gain political power, seek political influence. Don't try and turn over the system that... All you're trying to do is live in submission to the political authorities that exist at the living the lives of good citizens so that no one will slander the name of our Savior Jesus Christ or the gospel. 
just live as good citizens, trying to live quiet, peaceable lives. That's, now, that didn't mean they couldn't criticize the political establishment. The entire book of Revelation is not a prediction of an end times that Jesus will one, time, one day bring about. It's actually a prophetic denunciation, condemnation of the Roman Empire because of the way it politically and economically oppresses marginalized people. And John continually says to the church, don't be a part of it. Separate yourself from this oppressive political system. You could be a critical political voice, but there was no political influence that was being sought. It was only in 313 after Christ when Caesar Constantine began the process of marrying the church and the state, that the church began to get this appetite for political power. Um, and for the last 1,800 years, that's how we've been living, as though the church needs political power for the kingdom of God to come. Right? There's lots of examples from all parts of the political spectrum. But just this past week, President Trump threw a state dinner for 100 evangelical leaders to thank them for their role in supporting his presidential agenda. Friends, that's a corruption of the gospel. The church does not exist for political power. The church does not need political power to bring about the kingdom. Because the truth is, the values of politics are often, almost all the time, at odds with the values of the kingdom. I could probably give you lots of examples. I'm going to give you two. The first is, politics breeds partisanship and tribalism and division in a way that's antithetical to the gospel. Right? Think about how the party system works. Right? You have different political parties that have different visions of what society should be. Should we have a big government or a small government? Are we all responsible for each other? Are we each responsible only for ourselves? Um, should we have conservative, traditional moral values or progressive, liberal moral values? There's just different visions. And they gather around themselves people who generally agree with the vision that they propose for society. But here's what partisan politics demands not just allegiance and they don't just want your vote they want your loyalty they want your membership they want you to become somebody who supports their party platform all the way down for someone for whom your party is always doing the right thing and everybody else is always doing the wrong thing if you're somebody who only always supports what your favorite party does, and you only always criticize what other parties do, then your political allegiance has trumped, you pardon the pun, <laughs> has trumped your allegiance to the kingdom of God. Because no political party in everything represents God's values. In all parties, they get parts of it right and parts of it wrong. And as soon as you are pledging blind allegiance, you are participating in partisanship that destroys community and is antithetical to the kingdom. And then, you know, what we get into echo chambers where you're only reading and listening and receiving news and media from sources you trust, which means sources that already agree with your political agenda. And then we villainize people from other parties. They're bad. And we do this politics of fear. You need to be terrified. You'll lose your rights and freedoms if they get elected. And, and it becomes this really hostile thing. That has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul says this to the church. Just as a body, the one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. 
For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. We were all given one spirit to drink, even so the body's not made up of one part, but of many. The Apostle Paul's basic point to the church is there's no partisanship in the kingdom of God. There's no partisanship. There's no tribalism in the church. We're all one. We have received, we are one community that has all pledged allegiance and faith to Jesus Christ through his life and death and resurrection. We've been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and joined in unity with each other. We are indivisible. Unity is the hallmark of the church, not partisanship, tribalism, and division. Now, that unity is not uniformity. The Apostle Paul is clear. We're very different parts. We don't all have the same perspective. We don't all have the same background. We don't all have the same viewpoint. We're not all coming from the same place. That We're from different ethnic backgrounds, he says, different socioeconomic backgrounds. In other places, he says, different gender backgrounds. We are very different from each other. But it's in the midst of that diversity that we experience unity. Because that diversity, that difference doesn't scare us. In fact, we consider it to be a gift from the Holy Spirit that God has given the church. And it's only when all the diverse viewpoints have a voice at the table that we can begin to become the thing that God has created us to be. Paul says, when everybody's the same, when everybody thinks the same, acts the same, has the same value system, you are not the church. You cannot become what God has created you to be. You can only be the church when in the midst of the diversity, you experience unity because of the spirit. It's very different than partisan politics, incompatible. Another example, partisan politics is all about power. It's about doing whatever needs to be done, saying whatever needs to be said to gain, to hold, and to expand political power so we can force our agenda on the rest of society by the force of law. We can impose it on others. It's all about power. And so the most important people politically in our culture are people with cultural power, which ridiculously in our culture are celebrities and wealthy people. These are the most culturally powerful people and so we urge them to use their cultural power in service of our political power so that we can gain hold and expand our political power and impose our vision on the rest of society and the church does it too the church is trying to gain political power in order to impose its vision on society whether that's you know the right to choose or the right to life whether that's various definitions of marriage whether that has to do with sex ed curriculums or prayers in the schools the church is trying to gather cultural power to achieve political power to impose its vision of, the, of society on everybody else, whether they like it or not. And that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says this. He called over his disciples. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. He says, you know how politics works. Once you have power, you hold it over the people that are under you and you impose your authority on others so that you can impose your will on them. You can get your way. Then he says this, it's not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Jesus says power in the church doesn't work the same way as power outside the church. The most powerful people in the church are the most humble, servant-hearted people in the church. They are not the ones with the most authority. The ones with the most authority are the ones who serve the most. 
You're not supposed to be using your power to lord it over other people and pose your agenda on others. Instead, you're supposed to be the servant who serves other people's agenda. What is a servant? A servant is somebody not who has power and authority, but who has given up power and authority. A servant is someone who has given up rights and freedoms in order to live out somebody else's agenda, in order to do somebody else's will, in order to meet somebody else's need. A servant never acts on their own behalf. They always act on the behalf of somebody else. And Jesus uses his own himself as his own example. He says, the, the son of man, Jesus, our Caesar, our king, our prime minister, Um, he did not come to be served, but to serve. To give his life on the cross so that God could change the world. God doesn't change the world through power. He changes the world through the sacrifice of people who are willing to die to themselves and serve other people. See, this is the ironic thing about politics. The values of politics are often at odds with the values of the kingdom. But the goal of politics is often exactly the same as the goal of the kingdom. And that is to make the world a better place. In Jeremiah 29, the prophet is writing a letter to a bunch of exiles, people who were citizens of Israel but living in foreign lands. And he says, so like the church, not living where your citizenship is. He says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Jeremiah says, I know that you're living in a place where you're not really citizens. Your citizenship is somewhere else. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're living in Canada. He says, but while you're there, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Do whatever you can to contribute to the life of the city in the way that makes it more safe and more abundant for everybody. If that sounds like a political vision, it genuinely is. And Jeremiah says, I I don't want you to withdraw from the city just because you're not citizens there. I want you to invest in making it safe and abundant, peaceful and prosperous for all. Our problem is the way we interpret that idea politically. As 21st century you know, liberal democratic capitalists. When we hear Jeremiah say, seek peace, seek the kind of society where everyone can live at peace. What we hear is seek the kind of society that will protect your rights and freedoms. Live politically in such a way that your rights and freedoms will be protected. And so often our political involvement is engaging in protecting our rights and freedoms, making sure that we're safe. When we read the word prosperity, as capitalists, we only think economically. As though the economy is the most important thing, which it isn't. In 1992, Bill Clinton defeated George H.W. Bush in a presidential election with one of the premier, premier campaign slogans was, it's the economy, stupid. Bill Clinton was right. People will vote for the person who puts the most money in their pockets. Ironically, George H.W. Bush lost because he broke his fundamental campaign promise from the cycle before, which was, read my lips, no new taxes. He had the audacity to take money out of people's pockets, so he lost. And Clinton, who promised to put money in people's pockets, won. And the truth is, when we engage politically, we often engage 
with whoever promises to put the most money in our pockets. We vote with our wallets. Whether that protects our small business or the business environment in general or the economy with growth and jobs or union renegotiations so that we as union members get more money, we will vote with our pockets. And that's not what Jeremiah is talking about. He's not saying be involved politically to protect your rights and freedoms or to enhance the economy. That's not what he's saying. Those two things together, by the way, add up to privilege. We vote to protect our privilege. And by the, I'll address, by the way, just briefly, the one group that has not been paying attention and been doodling the whole time, and that's the group of people who don't care about politics, because there are people here who don't care about politics, don't pay attention to politics, don't talk about politics. And this whole morning has felt maybe irrelevant to you. Guess what? The only people who can afford to not care about politics are the people whose privilege is so secure that it does not feel threatened. This conversation is relevant because the only reason you don't care is because your privilege right now is being protected. And so you're content and you don't get involved. That's not what Jeremiah is talking about. Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city. Seek the peace. The word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. It means wholeness, well-being, and harmony. Seek the wholeness, well-being, and harmony of the city. He doesn't say seek your wholeness, well-being, and harmony. He says seek the wholeness, well-being, and harmony of the city, of people who aren't you, of all people, so that collectively there's wholeness, wellness, and harmony. And that sometimes and often means that some people have to give up something so that other people can also experience wholeness, well-being, and harmony. It's exactly what we've been saying. That politics, biblically, isn't about partisanship. It's not about voting to protect the rights and freedoms of people like me, making society safe and abundant for me and my tribe. It's about protecting people who are unlike me. It's not about preserving power, consolidating power so I can impose my agenda on everybody else. It's about giving up rights and freedoms and sacrificing so that I can humbly serve, sacrifice to serve the agenda of somebody who needs things more than I do. Giving up privilege to serve. That's biblical political theory. In Psalms chapter 72, the psalmist reports a prayer for the king, and this is what it says. Endow the king with justice, O God, the royal son with righteousness. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood, their life in his sight. What is the king supposed to do? What are political leaders supposed to be invested in? They're supposed to be filled with the wisdom of the justice of God so that they can exercise their office in favor of the weak and the needy, the, the afflicted, those who have no advocate, those who are being oppressed and who are victims of violence, they are the ones that are the focus of political action. They're the most politically important people. It's the same as what Jesus said. The good news is good news for the blind and the disabled and the poor and the imprisoned and so on. He says his disciples are to focus their lives on serving the hungry and the, uh, the homeless and the marginalized and excluded, the immigrant, the migrant, the stranger, the sick, the imprisoned. Those are the people 
who are the most politically important folks. That's what po politics is about. It's about serving those people to make sure that there's wholeness, health, and well-being throughout the city for everybody. So what do we do? How do we engage politically? A couple of thoughts. Number one, we, we be the kingdom in our political environment by the way we pray. In 1 Timothy 2, it says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. First of all, Paul says, top priority, pray. Petitions, prayers, intersection, and even thanksgiving for our political leaders. Even the ones you disagree with, the ones you didn't vote for, the ones that you can't stand. Prayer. And not the prayer, by the way, of Steve Anderson, who was a pastor in Phoenix, who once years ago preached a sermon called Why I Hate Barack Obama. He said, I pray for our president. I pray Psalm 109, 8 and 9. May his days be few. May another take up his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. He says, I literally pray that God would give Barack Obama a brain tumor and that he would die and go to hell. Come on now. Pray for our leaders. Pray for the ones you disagree with. I don't know if you voted for Justin Trudeau. I don't care. Pray for him. I don't know if you voted for Doug Ford. I don't care. Pray for him. Pray that God would fill them with the wisdom of his justice so that they could use the political machinery of our country and of our province and of our city and our region to work on behalf of the poor and the needy and the afflicted and the oppressed and the victims of violence so that there would be wholeness and well-being and uh, harmony throughout our city. Pray for our city. He says, pray for everyone, including the leaders. Pray for our city. Pray that this is the politic that we would experience and live. I cast my votes in St. Catharines, where Walter Sensick is the mayor. I don't know if you voted for Walter. I don't care. I don't know if you're going to vote for Walter. I don't care. One of the things that has impressed me so much about his first term is his Compassionate City Initiative where in conversation with Tim Arnold, who was a pastor here at Southridge, who convinced uh, Walter that compassion is an essential component of our life together, he said that a part of his administration was through care and action to bestow dignis, dignity, respect, and opportunity on every resident of St. Catharines by taking care of its most needy. Pray, whoever you vote for, that that's the kind of politics we experience. And then don't just pray it, live it. First Timothy says the goal is that we would live lives of godliness and holiness. Lives where we are so different than the rest of the world because of the way we live like God, which is always only ever love. We have to be the kingdom in the midst of our culture. We have to show our society what it looks like to live a kingdom politic. So be engaged with our community. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to live the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven as a spirit-filled community who's devoted in faith to Jesus Christ who by his life, death, and resurrection makes it possible for us to be different. 
And we're living it out through worship in environments like this, in community, in environments like life groups, and through social action and things like our anchor causes in all of our locations. And we all need to be participating so we can be the kingdom. I was once introduced at the St. Catherine's Club by somebody I hardly knew. I met her once. I was introduced by her to a colleague as one of the pastors of that church that does all those wonderful things for our city and region. That's who we need to be. We need to be it not just as a church, but as ourselves in society, even through our political action right? Um, William Wilberforce was an evangelical Christian at the turn of the 18th century and a member of British Parliament who spent four decades of his life arguing and advocating for the end of the slave trade and the abolition of slavery throughout the British Empire because of his devotion to Christ. That's political leadership. I'll tell you what isn't political leadership. Arrogantly being an armchair quarterback, beaking off about how dumb the guys are at Queens Park or in Ottawa and how if you were in charge, everything would be better. It comes out of ignorance, it comes out of arrogance, and it has nothing to do with the person of Jesus. To bring the conversation all the way back around, we need to become the kind of people that stops putting our faith in politics to make the world better and start putting our faith in Jesus who lived and who died and who was raised from the dead to unleash the power of the resurrection on the world. The only power that will genuinely change our world. And we need to live into it and be a part of it. And we need to be the agents through which that resurrection power comes into our society, whether we use politics as a tool or not. But it's time for us to not have politics as a fundamental part of our worldview about what the world is to be like and our place in it, but instead to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, trusting in the power of Christ through us individually and together to be the change that we want to see in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on this day, we lift up to you Justin Trudeau, we lift up to you. Doug Ford, we lift up to you the regional and municipal governments in our region that are all up for re-election right now. As we form a new government provincially, we form a new government locally as we're heading into an election season nationally, I pray that you would give us the kinds of leaders who are filled with the wisdom of your justice and who are prepared to live a kingdom politic in the world. I pray for our city, our cities, our region. I pray for our province and our country that in increasing ways, the kingdom would come more among us as it is in heaven. I pray for us that we would live together as the community of Southridge as an alternative society within our community as citizens first of the kingdom with you as our prime minister that we would follow your leadership into the life together that you envision for us in a way that can inspire the rest of our community. And I pray for those in our midst who are living engaged lives politically, who are seeking office politically, I pray that you would um, guide them into the kind of politic that advocates on behalf of your kingdom. May we learn to trust you instead of our politics to change the world. 
because you are the only one who can change anything. Through Jesus Christ, your son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.